The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or its components. This is perspective number two, a part of the For the Zoomies podcast, and I am your host, Andrew Cormier. Today's guest is the show's first enlisted member. He was the honor graduate in his BMT class and went on to serve in the aerospace ground equipment field, deploying twice in support of operations Enduring Freedom, Inherent Resolve, and Freedom Sentinel. Apart from his time with age, he then went to become an a military training instructor welcoming new airmen to the force. He currently serves a similar role as an AMTI here at the academy, where last year he earned the honor of the Cadet Wing MTI of the Year. Ladies and gentlemen, Master Sergeant Michael Walsh. Thank you, sir. I'm, I'm honored and privileged to be on your program. It's really nice to have, uh, I mean, every perspective is diverse, but I've never really gotten into the weeds with a... Um, enlisted member so i'm really looking forward to it yes sir so to kick things off um do you mind giving the audience a little background about yourself where you're from uh things of that sort yeah absolutely so uh born and raised in uh, newton new jersey on the border of new york and pennsylvania been in the air for 17 and a half years um married i have a i have two children i have a nine-year-old daughter and a 13-year-old son um as you said, I'm an aerospace ground equipment troop, also known as AGE. I'm also a military training instructor. I've been stationed in uh, in Alaska, Georgia, Texas, Kansas, here, and then I'm about to go to Dover Air Force Base, where I'm going to be the flight chief for the for the AGE flight. And uh, like you said, I've been deployed so two locations: Camp Bastion, Camp Leatherneck, uh, Afghanistan, and also uh, Al Udeed Air Base in Qatar. Mm -hmm. That's my my brother actually just enlisted. So, um, and he's in the maintenance field for F-16. I don't know if you'll ever come into contact with him. He'll be going off to um, South Korea after he finishes um, tech school. So I hear there's a really high ops tempo there. Yeah, there's fi fighters are a high ops tempo. They're 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 busy, but also on the tankers and and heavy side, they they tend to. Um, do some more trips because airplanes always need to get refueled cargo always needs to get dropped off somewhere so mm -hmm. and it's a small air force so i wouldn't be surprised if we ran into me and your brother ran into each other in because <laughs> i still i still got some work to do i'm not i'm not getting out at 20 so yeah i'm looking forward to uh another 13 years we'll see what the air force has to say holy crap <laughs> i can't even think about getting myself to come, go past five right now but you never know to see yes. where life takes you. So uh, what made you want to enlist? You know, at the academy, we, we always kind of talk about why we're here. And I don't know if that's different coming out of high school for you, but what's, what was your why to join? So, so why is it really important? And one thing people need to realize with the why is everybody has a different why, and there's nothing wrong with your why changing over the years as you serve so mm -hmm. like i said being from northern new jersey uh, about an hour outside of new york city uh i was a freshman when september 11th happened so um anybody in, in my generation that, and that was in high school at that time they, they remember it really vividly even if they weren't in the in the northeast um around the uh, the tri-state area as we as we say it so mm -hmm. uh, i knew i wanted to serve pre 9-11 but 9-11 really kind of sealed the deal and uh my reason to join the air force is actually a, a failed navy dream 
So I had hmm. I had a couple of uncles that were in in the in the Navy. My grandfather was in World War II, and um, you know it, it skipped a generation of service. So I wanted to join the Navy, do a four year enlisted as a as a fireman, and then get out and join the New York City Fire Department. But in May of 2005, the Navy said, you know, we're not going to we're not going to accept you because in January of 2005, they had a new tattoo reg and I have a tattoo that sticks out of the back of my T-shirt. So oh. I was crushed. And my dad was like, hey, let's just go, let's let's go talk to the to the uh, to the Air Force recruiter. So we talked and um, normally New York City firemen, they have a couple of other side gigs besides doing the fireman thing. So I was like, all right, let me go in for, for HVAC, for heating, ventilation, air conditioning, so I can have a trade getting out. Um, so went to BMT, went open mechanical, but we kind of have like how you guys put in your preferences, right? So I had everything from cop, fireman, uh, public affairs, all kinds of maintenance jobs, and I ended up getting aerospace ground equipment. So I'm like, all right, I'll do my four years and, uh, and, and get out. Um, but and I, go back to be a firefighter and go back to be a okay. fireman. But uh, I fell in love with with aircraft and 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 what we do. So I decided to to reenlist and uh, and so now moving forward, my why, right? I continue to serve to serve, right? We look at uh, strategic competition and and all that kind of stuff. And um, there was a soldier in World in in World War One or World War Two. I can't remember, but he had a diary on him and. Uh, and in in his diary, he talked about how he's going to treat everything that he does as if the entire struggle depended on him, mm-hmm. right? So I have the mentality of, so I'm going to do the best that I can at whatever I do so that if the call goes out and, and we have to, you know, put warheads on foreheads or move cargo or refuel aircraft, right? Whatever tiny job that I have, I realize that's going to play into the bigger pieces of things, mm-hmm. right? So I continue to serve to serve, right? Take care of the young airmen coming up, the young NCOs, you know, this other perspective of taking care of the officers now as I'm a senior NCO. So my, my why is to, is to serve. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I'm, my wife and I, we always joke, like, I don't know what I'm going to do when I get out and try to do the civilian life. So, you know, but we got some time to figure that out. But, but my why is to, is to serve and, um, make it so that if there's an event that happens, right, I, I don't want an event like 9-11 to happen again. So whatever small piece I have to play into that, I want to make sure I take it seriously, I do it right, so that way uh, we prevent something like that. Mm. We need people like you in our military. I uh, I just interviewed Lieutenant Colonel Conover. He's 2's AOC. Yes. That guy takes extreme pride in his job, and, you know, that missiles doesn't get a good rap no. in the cadet wing, and I don't know about in the Air Force in general, but – we need people to do those difficult jobs that nobody wants to do. And yeah, he's, he's got a, you know, missiles is a very, very tough, uh, very tough job. Just the conditions that they work through and the significance of their job and what that entails. So yeah, very difficult job. So mm. yes. Yeah. Going back to your, your tattoo, is that, was it ever kind of a thought to get it removed? To They, they talked about it. They said, well, you can get the laser removal, but per the reg also talks about scarification, right? So, really? So that's another a body modification thing. So even though I would have that, um, that's still something that they would, they felt was unprofessional at the time, but you know, you know, you know, 18 years later, now the Navy and now the air force, you can actually have a tattoo, you know, on a certain spot of your neck and everything mm-hmm. like that. But the air force recruiters like, no, it gets covered by the BDUs. So I'm, I'm dating myself. Um, <laughs> 
but yeah, they said I was good to go. Sweet. So. <laughs> yeah. So you, you want to give us a little rundown about age? Yes, absolutely. So, uh, aerospace ground equipment, it's part of aircraft maintenance. And what that does is we support, uh, the maintainers, whether they're back shop on the flight line, we deal with uh, powered and non-powered pieces of age, right? So we have everything from these tiny jacks that we use to change tires. Of course, by we, I mean the, the ones that are actually doing the, the servicing of the aircraft. Um, maintenance platforms, uh, hydraulic test stands, so that supplies hydraulic pressure to the aircraft so that it's not putting wear on the aircraft components. Mm-hmm. Uh, we our our primary gig is uh, is generators, whether that's a regular diesel engine like you'd find in a truck with a generator on the backside, all the way up to turbine engines that produce power and bleed air depending on on the airframe. But my favorite piece is the bottom lift. That's the closest that age typically gets to uh, to weapons to, to weapons and combat. Right, mm-hmm. that's the closest thing because we maintain the piece of equipment the weapons troops use to. Uh, load the aircraft and it's my favorite piece because it's a hydraulic nightmare right I'm, I don't, I'm not a real big electrical di- guy because I like I like hydraulics because you can see there's mm-hmm. a problem right? yeah I can say okay that's leaking I need to fix that so um, and then on top of supporting the the flight line in the back shops also within our section a lot of the behind the scenes things that people don't see when it comes to to my career field is um, we have an inspection section, so uh, twice a year, every piece of equipment comes into the shop, and then there's different criteria for what inspection's going on. Uh, if a piece of equipment breaks, we have a maintenance section that uh, gets that piece of equipment back to uh, FMC, or fully mission-capable status, so that way we can go out and, and, and provide equipment so we can uh, maintain launch recovery aircraft. And there's even some base support as well. Like, we had over 300 of the mobile heaters when I was up in Alaska, right? Mm-hmm. Most shops have, you know, um, have between five to nine hundred pieces of equipment, and we are and we had three hundred heaters alone. So we support the front gate if the power goes out, or if there's an event, we'll support light carts. So that's us working with CE as well. So there's also a saying in my career field that there's no air power without ground power, mm-hmm. and you know people tend to scoff at that like they do with with ammo's uh, saying, which I won't say on this. On this <laughs> but I can um, bleep it out. <laughs> but when uh, when we we aren't able to support the flight line with with equipment, uh, it gets noticed real quick because then aircraft uh, e-techs are pushed back, and you know we might lose a sortie or something like that, and then um, you know bad things can happen. But that, that's the thing about aircraft maintainers, and you see with the branches as well. We'll give each other a tough time, but when it comes time to get the job done, we'll all work together mm-hmm. to to get through it. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like if you can't do your job, maintenance can't do, can't do their job, so the pilots can't do their Correct. job. Okay. Correct. So we kind of dabble in everything because you have uh, elect- uh, electrical and environmental troops that deal with that kind of stuff. You have hydro- hydraulic troops that deal with hydraulics, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you have engine troops that deal with engines. We kind of dabble in everything. So engine troops need our equipment. Uh, sheet metal, metals tech need our equipment. Uh, crew chiefs need our equipment. So so. We kind of have our fingers in everything, you know, jack of all trades, uh, master of none, mm-hmm. if you will. Uh, but, but yeah, age is, you know, if you look at pictures on the flight line and you look at those little support pieces around the aircraft, you're just going to see that it's, it's, it's all over the place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, when you're talking about carrying, uh, like, bombs out, it kind of reminds me of, I, I used to work in a, in a mold shop, and... <laughs> Shout out to Wachusett Precision Tool, but uh, (laughs) I was doing some things I definitely shouldn't have been doing that were probably similar, not definitely, not nearly as kind of tense as 
working with a bomb, but I had this mold, a, a three-ton mold. Um, it was for beef clips. You know what beef clips are? No. So apparently when um, at wherever they kill cows, I forget, butcheries, okay. they, they chop the head off, and then they use a clip to clip the esophagus so the bile doesn't contaminate the meat. Oh. And I had the mold for the meat clip, or, okay. yeah, the beef clips. And so I was responsible for flipping it with a crane. Okay. And imagine six tons of steel. Yes. That is unsupervised as a 17-year-old. <laughs> I, can, I can kind of understand yeah, what and, you're talking and, about and with the bomb. That's the unique thing about, about my gig is we work on the bomb lifts. Mm-hmm. It's another career field that's actually handling the munitions. Okay, okay. Right, so, you know, granted, I'm not the one that's loading <laughs> the bomb, but I want to make sure the guy who is, you it know, doesn't for go their wrong, safety, yeah. of course, right, but also making sure that, you know, that aircraft can go fly. Mm-hmm. So. so, I mean – None of the ki- none of the people who are going to listen to this most likely are going to get into age because this is meant for officers. Mm-hmm. But for, to get a little context, like in a job where the ratio of enlisted to officer personnel is high, what is it like interacting with your commander? So, granted, there's not going to be any uh, any officers that are working age, but mm-hmm. we will have, uh, as an example, there's a cadet here that is going to be an aircraft maintenance officer, and we're actually going to be stationed at Dover together. So oh, there's really? a chance that that cadet could be my flight commander mm-hmm. once I once I get to to Dover. So um, the like you said, the ratio is very high. So for example, when we're talking the maintenance squadron, right? Because normally in the maintenance group, you have a maintenance squadron and then a aircraft maintenance squadron. So for the maintenance squadron that covers, you know, the back shops and, and that type of stuff, you'll have your, uh, your squadron commander, who's normally a major or lieutenant colonel. You have your maintenance oper- operations officer, which is normally a captain. And then you're going to have your flight commanders, which are normally second or first lieutenants. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I, I tell anyone, whether they're going maintenance or not, uh, here at the academy, once you, once you get there, you get settled in process and you're starting to learn your job, spend some time with, with your airmen and your NCOs. See what the job is. So uh, my last base, I had a, I had a couple of uh, second lieutenants rotate through, so I got them a, pair of, uh, a new pair of boots and a pair of coveralls so they could spend some time on the floor with the airmen, turning wrenches, changing filters, engines, tires, you know, jump in the truck and dispatch equipment just so that they have an idea of what the airmen go through so that when they have to make a decision, how is that going to affect the flight, affect mm-hmm. that airman, you know, on duty, off duty? Are these longer hours? Are we having to work the weekend because of an aircraft surge or, or, or something like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like that's a recurring theme throughout basically all jobs is that you want to know. I mean, especially at personally acquisitions is something that is interest. I'm interested in. And um, one thing that I kind of struggle with is that I don't have any experience in an aircraft and it's difficult for me to have that experience and want to make decisions on behalf of them. But in maintenance, there is an opportunity to at least go see what they're doing. And I'm not trying to say that I can't do anything. There isn't anything in my means to, as an acquisition officer, to kind of go and get pilot's perspectives on it mm-hmm. but it's not as hands-on as true. say maintenance would be true so um when it 
when you're going from E2 to E6, does that interaction with your commander change at all? Uh, it, it does. It kind of depends on the person, right? Mm-hmm. So if we have a, a young airman, you know, an E2, one striper, um, you know, is having a tough time with things, might be having some disciplinary issues, mm-hmm. probably going to spend some more time with that commander, right, with those officers. Um, uh, for the for the typical troop that you know falls to core values does does what they're supposed to do uh, it's kind of a little interaction you'll see them at commanders calls and promotion uh, announcements uh, things like that also kind of depends on on that officer as we'll get to in a little bit um, I really didn't start working with officers until I was a staff sergeant at BMT um, because there was some things going on at BMT so they decided to increase the number of officers so. I was working with first lieutenants and and captains as uh, flight commanders, and then once I returned to maintenance as a staff sergeant, I found out I made tech uh, going back to my career field uh, at McConnell, and uh, we had flight commanders. I didn't have that at my previous two bases at Ielson in Alaska, and then I think I had maybe one flight commander while I was at Moody Air Force Base in Georgia. Um, so I didn't in, involve with them a lot, but going from a staff sergeant to a technical sergeant, I started working more with the officers, just kind of giving them an update on what's going on with the equipment, my people, that kind of stuff. Uh, they would sit in on production meetings and, and flight meetings. Um, uh, but then once I made master sergeant, I really started working hand in hand with that flight, uh, with that flight commander. And then I started working more with the maintenance operations officer as they would come down. Like if we go down, a certain amount of number on equipment, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, it's called a called a a, a a mel a mission essential listing. So let's say we have five hydraulic test stands, and our mel level is three. So if we go below that, then we have to start answering questions like, okay, what's wrong with this piece of equipment? Okay, it needs parts. Are the parts on base? We have to order parts. How long is it going to take for that part to get replaced? X, Y, and Z. So mm-hmm. having those conversations with them, but also at McConnell, uh, previously coming to uh, the academy, we were bringing on the KC-46. So I got to work more so with the group commander and the wing commander talking about, okay, you know, we the contract from Boeing says we're getting these pieces of equipment. How is that going to affect our daily operations? Mm-hmm. And when it comes to mobilizing this equipment to go down range or TDY, those types of things. So, um, you know, the, the interactions as a young airman isn't too often. Kind of depends on your performance, whether you're doing really well or you need to improve on some things. But as you go up the enlisted ranks, you have more of those interactions. Okay. Right, uh, especially training the second lieutenants coming in, showing them, okay, this is how, you know, we handled this issue. This is how, okay, hey, we got some good news. Found out this person may be below the zone, so you know, ma'am, sir, do you want to present the stripes to them? Because uh, sometimes the squadron commander will delegate that to the uh, to the flight commander. So it just kind of depends on the situation. Okay. Yeah. How about um, on a on a less professional level? Um, obviously, barring fraternization. Um, kind of circumstances but i when i was down in texas for um the arlington or the army air force game i ran into uh a west point grad and he was there with his nco Mm -hmm. and i'm not going to deny the the culture of the army is different than the air force yes and it's undeniable but is there some component of you know there has to be some sort of interaction outside of work to instill some sort of trust between the two it uh, it kind of depends so 
you know, fraternization, it's kind of covered in the, the AFI that talks about professional and professional relationships. So mm-hmm. when it's a large event like that, it's, you know, it's, it's, even though it's a football game, it's still work related. So yeah, they're going to have some camaraderie between each other and that'd be a good time for maybe that, that NCO to kind of mentor that, that, that army officer on, on some things. Um, but when it comes to like a shop function or, you know, let's say the flight chief invites the whole the whole shop, the the entire shop to to like his house for a barbecue or something like mm-hmm. that. Because the whole flight's invited, that's all right. Now, if it was just that senior NCO having that that officer come over to the house, that's where we started to get into some of that 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 unprofessional type type stuff. So it kind of okay. again, it depends on the situation. Hey, I'm inviting the whole shop. Okay, I got fifty percent of the team here. Cool, everything's fine. So. Um, you know, there definitely needs to be some of those, uh, some of those moments where people can be people and kind of understand, okay, I know who you are as a, as a master sergeant, but who are you as, you know, in my case, Michael, who are you, you know, mm-hmm. and then, you know, who are you as Jeff, the second lieutenant, right? Mm-hmm. So trying to just trying to figure out that kind of stuff. I don't see anything wrong with that, but it, again, it depends on what's going on in those situations. Yeah. I just see military as most jobs, especially maintenance, having to high stress environment. And in high stress environments, usually that relies on a lot of trust to accomplish the mission. Yes. And usually trust is formed on a more unper or informal. Yeah, informal. I don't want to say unprofessional. Yeah. Uh, informal basis. Yeah. So. And and we see that too. Like some bases have these things called First Fridays, where where every, like you know a, a population of the base will go to the uh, you know the enlisted club or or something like that, and mm-hmm. you just kind of. Um, you know, choir practice, as some people call it. So we just, you know, get together, talk, kind of have it really informal and just kind of be people. Still in uniform, but we're still being people. Okay. So do you think you could give a real example of a strong, I mean, you don't have to mention names, but a strong commander and what their habits were from your perspective and maybe an impactful interaction you've had with them? So to me, the most impactful leaders are the ones that are visible. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not just at um, at all calls. It's not just at uh, promotion releases. They're the ones that are that are visible and and they 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 get in touch with their teams. Right. So uh, at McConnell, I had one squadron commander and as well as the chief and the first sergeant. Sometimes the maintenance operations officer, also known as the MOO, uh, would kind of just go from shop to shop you know, during the week and they would, they, they would have lunch in the break room. Mm-hmm. Say, hey, how's everything going? All that kind of stuff. So get some of that visibility with the team and they know, okay, you know, that's the squadron commander. Right. Um, and also, um, you know, during long hours. Right. So when we have inspections and exercises, normally shops go on 12 hour shifts. Right. So seeing the commander there, not during the normal duty hour type thing. And that goes for the senior NCOs as well, mm-hmm. but especially for the, for the officers just to be visible and to kind of be in the suck with mm-hmm. everybody. Right. Um, and also people that, uh, that, that seeing that they care about the little things, right? Of course, big rocks. Okay. Don't drive your bobtail or your flight line truck or the bread van into an aircraft. Big rock. Got it. Okay. We're going to cover that, but also making sure that, you know, we're taking care of the little things, right? When people find out that an inspection team's coming to the base or there's going to be an exercise, that's when people want to start following the rules, right? But if we make that habit of just doing things by the book mm-hmm. and living that way and 
building that habit. When inspection teams come in, we don't lose any production. We're doing what we're supposed to be. Yeah, you can inspect us all day, right? Yeah, we don't have any locked storage closets with unauthorized tools or anything like that, right? So seeing people that care about the little things, um, not just with dress and appearance, but just with, with day-to-day shop functions and kind of getting after the big picture. That To, to me, that's a, that's a strong, impactful team that that cares about not just the mission but the people right because mm-hmm. if you take care of the people the mission will figure itself out mm-hmm. it sounds like it must be a little bit more difficult maybe in comparison to jobs that the enlisted to officer ratio is a little bit lower mm-hmm. in maintenance fields where i don't know how many officers there are to enlisted it must be kind of difficult to know every single enlisted member yes. personally but I guess it does go the extra distance if you do do that. Yes. So on the flip side, do you have an example of a weak example of a leader? Yeah. Um, you know, and, you know, there's a saying in the Air Force, you learn a lot from from bad supervisors more than you do the good supervisors, right? So uh, some some bad habits that I've seen in my time are the ones just aren't that aren't visible, mm-hmm. right? I understand people need to take leave and some time off, but the ones that seem like they're always gone and not in their office, granted, I don't know what the situation is, right? But when that's just a habit of people not being there, not being visible, right? Not being in the suck with their guys mm-hmm. and gals, right? That's that's something I see. And also, you know, if they're, if they're only around to give bad news, right? They're, they're mm-hmm. only there for all calls to say, hey, we're doing X, Y, and Z wrong. Okay, can you give me something that I'm doing well? Can you give me something the squadron or the flight is doing well so that we're not just leaving with our heads down like, oh, man, we're, you know, we're, you know, we're a bunch of uh, unsat maintainers. We're not doing anything right. So the ones that give that positive feedback as well, even if there's something bad going on, like, hey, listen, we got this to get after, but let's let's take a pause and look at the things that we're doing right, right? Mm-hmm. We have very low QA fails, right? We haven't had a DUI in over a year because all of you are looking out for each other and being wingman, right? Having that inspiration and, yeah. and motivational piece to it as well as, uh, is, is something that's good. And, um, you know, and then again, kind of like the opposite of what I said with the last question, you know, the ones that don't care about the small things, right? Um, and I, I think that's a little bit later in, in the questions, but we'll, we'll talk, we'll, we'll talk about that when it comes up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's exactly the same, but I've had bad coaches mm-hmm. when I'm playing hockey. Yeah. And if they just come at you with all this negativity and never sing any praise, it just crushes. You catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, when people see the campaign hat, they just think it's all knife hands and drop kicks. But, <laughs> you know, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if you saw it when you were a, a basic cadet here because there's – you know, there's a small team of MTIs and, you know, a large amount of, of cadre and basics. But did you see any of us say, like, good job or give any of that positive feedback? Um, the only time I really remember, <laughs> I don't know if I want to say too many names, but there was a there was a cadet in my, in my flight that hadn't shaved that morning. And he was getting a talk down while we were practicing facing movements on mm-hmm. the T-zone. To be honest, that's the only interaction okay. i've seen with my flight but i'd love to hear what you have to say yeah, about it is you know I, I you know on the enlisted side and I've, I've said this to cadets here as well but it's just it's just you and me talking right now but um 
I had some feedback from some of my trainees at Lackland, you know, when we're getting ready to ship them off to graduate. And then the, the, you know, we, sh- when I was there, we would ship them off on Monday and then Tuesday night, I'm picking up a whole new mm-hmm. flight of 50 to 60 individuals. Right. So they said, sir, you know, we kind of had an idea of what, what we were getting ourselves into, but the first time you told us we were doing a good job, like we were, we were taken back cause it was, it definitely wasn't right away. Mm-hmm. Right. But it was kind of later on when we were starting to get the drill movements down and, you know, I said flight, tench hut, and everyone's heels came together at one time. And you paused and you stressed that, that tiny, that tiny little moment. Mm-hmm. And you said that we're doing a good job and we're, we're getting there. We're on the right path. And just that just motivated us to, to go out and, you know, pretty much do whatever. You told us to move, you know, Antarctica to the, to the equator. We would do that for you, right? <laughs> so, so, you know it's it's really important to give that that praise when it's applicable mm-hmm. right you know now if i'm just saying you know it's not a pro, you know, a uh, participation trophy yeah right I you're not overusing saying, it you know if if the dorm's on fire and i say no good job everything's going great you know that that that, that takes away the intent and the credibility of that praise so mm-hmm. it's, it's important to praise when it's appropriate and you know sometimes people just need to pick me up Right. Mm-hmm. So you can find the smallest thing that you say somebody is doing correctly, then then you know you go for it, and you'll see, especially as an officer, especially as a leader, what that could do to the youngest airman all the way up to oh, all the way up to the chief. Mm-hmm. I also noticed that when personally when I receive praise or a compliment from somebody that I respect a lot, and that comes with gaining the respect of somebody. Yes. But those compliments often hit a lot harder than those from somebody who I. I don't know how if it sounds harsh to say respect less, but mm-hmm. it's just not as grand of a level. Yes. And I, I don't know if you have any tips on, I guess, the credit. I mean, we're going to get into it a little bit later, but um, gaining that credibility really gains you that respect in my mind. And it, it raises the value of those and, compliments. And how to get that, you know, like, like I said, you got to you got to go through some stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. The team, you know, we're getting ready for, you know, let's say a deployment. Right. And we're doing all the. Uh, you know, the bag drags and, and processing lines, right? And then, you know, when your troops see you as the leader with them going through those long hours, right? Because we would have chalk movements, right? Groups groups of people as a chalk go through the different processing lines, 2200 at night, 2300 at night, 01 in the morning, right? If they see their boss out there with them instead of being home, mm-hmm. like, all right, yeah, cool. All right, he, hey, he's in there with us. So you gain those those little pieces of of credibility and trust and and respect granted everyone's going to respect the rank right but then when we talk about the person do i respect this leader as a person that's how you start to get after that to Mm -hmm. where it's no longer you know yes we have the rank structure and everything like that but when we just talk about you know you know human emotion and people coming together and doing stuff they'll remember that little stuff when things start to get hard Mm -hmm. i think i was actually lucky in high school Shout out to uh, First Sergeant Jordan A. He was um, my Marine Corps JRTC instructor, but he set a really positive example for that. And because that was the baseline for me, it's I always like assume that. Yes. And um, so I, I got to say thank you, but it's also set a false precedent of hey, this isn't always going to be there. So everybody's a little bit different, mm-hmm. right? So you know, take take what you can from those people that you respect, right? And then. Anytime you engage with somebody, you either learn what to do or what not to do, mm-hmm. right? So I got a long list of what not to do, whether the things that I've done myself and I, I'm humble enough to myself to say, okay, that didn't work. I'm not going to do that again. Mm. But also seeing things from, 
you know, my peers to leaders I've had in the past um, and see, okay, I remember how that made me feel. So I want to, I want to do things differently. Cause mm-hmm. even though if I have a, a significant emotional event with somebody, I want them to know walking away from that situation that I still care about them as a person. And I'm so hard on them. And I really want to drive that home Mm -hmm. because I don't want to see you fail. Right. Because safe environment here outside the black gates going operational, you might not have a whole lot of chances to make those types of mistakes. Mm -hmm. Right. So not only take care of you, but take care of the people you lead. Mm -hmm. So moving on to BMT, what really made you want to become an MTI? So I came in the in the Air Force knowing martial arts and video games, right? That, that's <laughs> that's what I knew, right? Mm-hmm. I wrestled. I did martial arts growing up. I I love video games. Uh, and the Air Force gave me a lot because I'm I wasn't very mechanically in, inclined, and they gave me all these skills. So I wanted I wanted to do more and and give back. Um, so I had a choice. Right, I I was either going to cross train to be an aerial gunner or be an MTI. So, aerial gunner, yes, like a like on a HH sixty oh Pablo at the time, uh, Ospreys. What made you gunships? So uh, when I was at my second base, I, I my first wife and I got divorced, and then I got uh, remarried to um, one of my best friends growing up. Like we we never dated in high school or anything like that, but we were like, hey, let's try us, right? Mm-hmm. So. The aerial gunner part was a very emotional type thing because of what was going on in my life. But mm-hmm. you know, you know, having you know my new wife and and my son, uh, my son isn't mine bi- biologically, mm-hmm. right? But he's he's my boy. And anybody who wants to tell me otherwise, like I'll gladly have um, a uh, uh, a significant discussion with them on that, right? So mm-hmm. you know, I have my wife, I have this little boy. And I still wanted to do something else and then maintenance and and at the time Moody Air Force Base was deploying a lot, right? Iraq, Afghanistan, because we had A tens, uh combat search and rescue, all that kind of stuff. So uh, I decided to become an MTI because I want to do more. And I've I've always loved the drill sergeant, drill instructor type type thing because they have to be sharp. They have to know what they're doing, they have to be confident, right? Mm-hmm. And it's it's an important job. Because as soon as you tell somebody to get off that bus, training starts. And I wanted, I was already part of something bigger than myself, being in the Air Force and being maintenance, but I wanted, I wanted something a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to go down there to, to shape and, and, and do more for the Air Force and what I was doing. But ultimately, while I was down there, reflecting on what I've been doing in aircraft maintenance, like I was, I was doing something important. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I've always loved my job. I just I just want to do something something more. Mm-hmm. And there was a call for more MTIs to come down and 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 do that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, I jumped on it. Right, I was 25 when I got picked up, and you know, not much older than than the cadets here. Right, so I was still in that very, you know, developmental frontal lobe status. Right, and I was thinking I'm going to do all these things and all this kind of stuff. But BMT actually helped mold me into being a leader and it's not just like I said about knife hands and drop kicks right it's about about getting people to kind of get the big picture to get the why mm-hmm. so so that's why I wanted to become an MTI and you know that honestly the hat the hat doesn't hurt right <laughs> um, there's there's a saying in the MTI core that the instructor makes the hat the hat doesn't make the instructor like 
my my hat on my desk right there pick it up okay so you're wow. holding you're holding the campaign hat right now do you feel any kind of superpowers or or anything like that i mean i'm not gonna lie a little bit a little bit if people didn't know who i was and i walked around with it on base maybe but i don't know if i would i i don't like imposter syndrome okay so instructors make that hat Mm -hmm. right that hat is either cardboard or felt the one you're holding right now is straw right you may oh you're literally talking about making this like with your well no no okay not quite the guys in sear that make their own okay right okay but the instructor makes the hat the instructor gives that hat the the symbolism that it holds Mm -hmm. right because it's it's designed to keep the sun off of our 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 neck and ears for hours on the drill pad right that's the history of the hat so so the skills that I've learned and what the importance of that is, I give that to the hat, right? Mm-hmm. The hat doesn't give me anything, right? Yeah, it looks, looks neat, right? But it's, it, it's, it's a lot more than that. And that's something I didn't realize until, you know, a good way through my first MTI tour. Mm-hmm. You know, going back to a, um, kind of the topic you, you mentioned before about different ways to serve i feel like that's at least in my mind right now and i've talked to some of my peers and there is this kind of sentiment of what is the most legitimate way to serve um kind of downgrading service Mm -hmm. and putting a value level on i guess equating it to sacrifice Mm -hmm. the level of sacrifice equals a higher level of service do you have anything to say about that? I think it's kind of off the cuff. So, no, it's, it, again, it kind of depends on the person, right? Someone someone joins the Air Force, whether they're enlisted or, or they're here, and let's say they want to be a doctor, mm-hmm. right? They're, they're doing their time in the Air Force so they can get the their, their training in to be a doctor. And maybe they only do, you know, a... a you know, a few years as an officer, but then they go be a, you know, specialist at a children's ward that, are, you know, deals with burns. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, that's a great, that's a, that's a great thing to do. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you get people like me that join to, you know, kill bad guys and break their stuff. Even though I'm not the one directly doing it, everyone in the military directly or indirectly does that, mm-hmm. you know, and then you get people who serve um, to travel the world right and then their reason for serving might change like how mine did when i was a young airman so if if you put on the uniform you work hard you follow rules you don't do anything uneducated your your (laughs) service is going to be there right it's the ones that don't grasp the core values the ones that don't grasp the the why they're they're part in the big picture Mm -hmm. that's where i could see kind of the you know, degrading the service a little bit. But if you do what you're supposed to, right, you, you know, meter exceed those standards, you know, service is service. Mm. Whether if you're turning wrenches, um, cooking food, flying aircraft, you know, everyone has their responsibility. You do what you're, what you're expected to do, service is service. You're, you're getting the mission accomplished. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely been something that's weighing on my mind. I'm like, I, 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 I'm considering acquisitions, but, you know, America needs people to do brave things every job is important so yeah (sighs) getting back on track okay (laughs) what are the main differences between the academy and 
your time down at Lackland? Oh my gosh. Okay. So I remember when we first came here in 2020, right? A lot of, a lot of people thought we were trying to turn the Academy into Lackland, right? To the point to where I just stopped saying Lackland. I refer to it as this other place I used to work, Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, the Academy does basic training once a year, Mm -hmm. right? 38 days of training, enlisted trainings, seven weeks. It's a little bit, a little bit longer. Um, but that's that's not the primary reason why we're here. Where at BMT, we're there to be like your flight NCO, right? The ones in the trenches grinding, you know, setting the standard, constant evaluation of the trainees or the basic cadets. Um, so that's what we did at Lackland, right? That was my job as a staff sergeant. Uh, so coming here as a master sergeant and the role that I play here is a little bit different. I'm a, you know, do we give whole first impressions of how to handle certain environments during BCT? Yeah, absolutely. I'll jump on the footprints and you know be like, hey, this is the limit. You, you do this, you're going to be fine. You're not going to get a training violation or anything like that. Mm-hmm. He said, we're having a hard time motivating the flight. You know, can you help us out? Yeah, absolutely. Right. And then you know, during the ACK year, we have different roles. Right. Um, we're working on cadets trying to please themselves we're working on you know standing valve when it comes to room standards we're working on training we're working on you know uh you know major training events those 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 types of things so it's it's a very different job but ultimately we're trying to give cadets our lens right what do we see Mm -hmm. right is it uncomfortable for you to correct your wingman that you see on the on the terrazzo yeah it absolutely is but being able to make a correction on somebody isn't because you're trying to, you know, be a jerk. It's just, hey, you're my you're my wingman, you're my battle buddy. You know, you're not meeting the standard. I care about you as a person, so I want you to meet the standard. Mm-hmm. I don't want you to get yelled at. And I don't want to get yelled at because you know, Master on Walsh didn't see me correct you right, and you're hanging out with him. Why aren't you looking out for your wingman? That kind mm-hmm. of stuff. So, it's a, it's a very different job, and that's that's okay. Different is okay. Right, but if we're able to merge our skills as MTIs with the skills your AMTs have, because your AMTs have different skills than us, and vice versa, so if we're able to, you know, have the professional maturity to merge our skills together, realize where some people are stronger than others, we could push out an even better product, right? Because we're always looking to improve, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so, so those are some of the some of the big differences here, and it's really giving cadets the, the the opportunity to lead and try new things in a training environment while staying in those left and right bounds. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not going to micromanage you, but these are some, you know, big do's and big do nots. Right. So within that, within that verbiage operate, take a risk, try something by risk. I mean, something that's uncomfortable, not breaking the rules, mm-hmm. but something that might not, you might not be comfortable with doing in front of a group of people. Mm-hmm. Right. So try, try different things and be genuine to yourself. Mm-hmm. Right. So, those are those are some of the differences between here and and the the other place I used to work. <laughs> you know, it's it's really interesting you say that because with the enlisted members that I come into contact with here, they have such an easier job. I don't know if it's just the culture here, but they have such an easier job correcting uh, tactfully. Mm-hmm. I don't. I mean, you you could just be you have seventeen years in the Air Force yeah. and. It's a, it's an acquired skill, but you guys just do it so much better than cadets do it. I don't know if it's just uh, like, okay, you're only a year older than me. You don't have the power to tell me what to do, but you're – you know what I mean? Well, I, it's I, hard to say. I had I actually had trainees that were older than me, 
mm-hmm. right? So I was like 25, 26. I had a guy in his mid 30s, mm-hmm. and I'm like, hey, listen, you're older than me, but you might have more life experience. But I'm this is this is my domain, mm-hmm. right? I'm going to get you to where you need to be. So trust me. I'm going to give you reasons to trust me, right? But even though you're older, because you have those life experiences, I expect you not to cause trouble and, mm-hmm. and, and that kind of stuff. But I think it's easier for the permanent party because, you know, we've been operational, right? We, you know, and especially, you know, NCOs and senior NCOs here as part of their job is to make sure people are doing what they're supposed to do. And not the, not the foundational stuff like drill and, and uniforms that comes with the gig, but also on those big stake items, mm-hmm. right? Their vehicle maintenance, making sure, Hey, you know, we're, Hey, where are all these extra lug nuts come from? <laughs> right. You know, not, not doing that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, I'm towing a piece of equipment. I get to the aircraft spot. Oh no, I forgot to close the pinnel hook on the back of the truck. And I don't know where the generator went. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, this, two and a half ton piece of metal, you know, now is going towards an F-22 or something like that, yeah. right? So I think it's just, it, it's it's no longer scary to us because we're, we've we've already walked that walk and now we're trying to give you the confidence to correct your peers on these little things because mm-hmm. little things add up to bigger things. Yeah, I think here it's it's a matter of two two factors. One, institutional pride not being where I think it should be. I think... People should be a lot more proud to be from here, personally. Um, I don't know if that's a lack of people not being connected to the history of this place or people just not appreciating how awesome Yusafa is. But also, I think there is, on the side kind of favoring the cadets, that we're not really in charge of anything really tangibly uh, maybe expensive or high stakes. And that gives a false sense of, hey, this doesn't matter. And, and you know, that, that's kind of the thing because we see that in, in, enlisted, in enlisted tech school because we have student leaders, right? They have the rope program mm-hmm. and, and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, the thing with the little things, right, the reason why we focus on how in, you know, here when you fold your shirts in 10 by 10 inch squares, when we roll shirts at BMT, we're, we're making sure we can trust you with the little things before we give you something bigger, right? Mm. I should be able to trust a cadet to wear the uniform right in the room to meet the standards before the Air Force, no, I don't give them, the Air Force gives them a $143 million F-22. Mm-hmm. We're even a couple steps earlier than that, right? We're going to be flying a T-38, right? Mm-hmm. We have to trust you with these little things before we can give you the big things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.